Can we talk about the fire movement and your thoughts on that? A lot of our listeners are still really involved in that. And I think it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about that. Well, they should all go to hell because it's the dumbest idea of all time. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. I'm Derek Sparks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, bosses. Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am Derek Sparks here in Los Angeles. Sam is on the other end. I think he's in Barcelona and we're switching up formats on this one. We're doing it a little bit differently. We're actually going to bring our guest on right away. His name is Jared Dillian. He was actually a Patreon request. If you didn't know, if you jump on the Invest Like a Boss Patreon, you can suggest guests to us and got a pretty good batting average of getting them on. Jared agreed to come on the show and he's got a new book out called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. It's out on January 23rd. Jared, welcome to Invest Like a Boss. Yo, thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on. Um, Before we jump into things, we're kind of going to split the episode into two sections. Sam was a little logistically challenged with getting the book. Sam likes to travel all over the place. So <laughs> we couldn't give him the book. Um, I was able to start the book, but Sam has been doing some other research on you. You got a really cool uh, little podcast too called Be Smart. Um, if no one's yeah. checked that out, Jared does these nice, like short little clips. It's a really easy listen. And it's, it's very interesting. Some of your thoughts on the economy. So I think we're going to jump into that as well. Okay. Before we do that, why don't you just tell us about a, your background? You seem a little bit unconventional from our normal guests in the financial space. Yeah. I, you know, I used to be a Coast Guard officer, went to the Coast Guard Academy and mm. spent nine years in the Coast Guard, went to business school and got a job on the options exchange out in San Francisco back when there still was one. From there, I got a job at Lehman Brothers. I was the head of ETF trading at Lehman Brothers. Uh, I was there at the bankruptcy, the you know, and that's when I started my newsletter called the Daily Dirt Nap. I've been doing that for the last 15 years. I've written four books. Books. First one was Street Freak in 2011. Uh, then I wrote a novel called All the Evil of This World. Then I wrote an essay collection called Those Bastards. And like you said, No Worries is coming out January 23rd. But, you know, like you said, I, I don't really fit the mold of a sort of standard issue white guy, you know, that does finance. Um, you know, <laughs> we, I try, do, I, we try to diversify our guests, but it's hard, man. There's a lot yeah. of old white guys out there <laughs> in this space. <laughs> Jared's got um, tattoos, so it's diversified. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, so I got, I got some of the tattoos here. You can see them. So yeah, we'll put pics up online too. Jared's uh, got not quite a full sleeve, but he's he's working his way there. I think the, the tattoos are new. Actually, I started getting them when I was like forty three or forty four. So something I always wanted to do. So he's definitely on the way to a sleeve. Definitely on the way to a full sleeve. Yeah, but um, I'm also a DJ. I haven't I haven't performed much this year, but I usually have six, seven, eight gigs a year. I throw parties in New York City. Nice. Uh, I play house music. So I come yeah. from a music uh, background too. I used to be a radio DJ, and I also uh, manage music artists. So I think we got some stuff to talk about at the end of the show about that. But cool. we'll talk about money first. <laughs> okay, Sam. I know you've been uh, listening to a lot of Jared's stuff. Do you want to kind of yeah. kick off some of the questions you had for him? Yeah, Jared. Sometimes we like to go back to kind of basics and clear up some terminology and things that, that might be unclear for ourselves and the listeners. I know you spend a lot of time just kind of analyzing charts and indicators of the, the general economy. Like what are some of your favorite indicators or things that you kind of pay attention to around like jobs reports or Fed rates and things that 
give you an idea of where the market might be heading? Well, really the number one thing that I look at, and this is kind of my competitive edge among all other analysts, is I look at sentiment and I look to see when sentiment is getting crowded on stuff. And just, you know, most recently I saw that sentiment was getting very crowded around short-term interest rates specifically. You had a group of people that called themselves the higher for longer club. And they had this little hashtag, it said H4L. And basically the thesis behind that was that we weren't going to have a hard landing. We weren't going to have a soft landing. We were going to have no landing. And in spite of the fact that the yield curve inverted a year and a half ago, and uh, the curve was uninverting, that we were not going to have a recession. The economy was going to keep trucking along and interest mm -hmm. rates would go to six, seven, eight percent. And that view became very consensus. And when something becomes consensus in the capital markets, it's usually time to go the other way, right? Mm. So I, you know, I personally had a big bet on short-term interest rates coming down, which is working out. So mm -hmm. you know, I apply that methodology to everything in finance. You know, even going back to October of 22, when the S&P was at 3,500 and inflation still hadn't really come down yet and yields were going up, you know, there were people who thought that we were going to go into a depression and, you know, stocks were going to go down another 20 or 30%. And I figured that was a pretty good time to buy stocks. So I just look for when everybody is on the same side of the boat and I go to the other side of the boat, classic contrarian stuff. Mm -hmm. You used a term in there that brings me to my next question. And I have to be honest, I don't know what it is. I don't know that the, the, the answer to this. So it's a question for myself, but also for listeners. And let's put Derek on the spot. Derek, do you know what an inverted yield curve is? I've heard the term. I couldn't I, I couldn't tell you intelligently <laughs> what it means. <laughs> I haven't heard of it in a while. It's been, I, I don't know the last time it happened, but yeah, Jared, I was hoping you could tell, tell us what a yield curve is for the rest of us. Yeah. So there's a bunch of, when people talk about interest rates, they talk about interest rates going up or down. You have to specify what interest rate they're talking about because there's interest rates across different maturities. You have one month, three month, six month, one year interest rates, two year, three year, five year, seven year, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year, right? all different maturities of bonds. And if you plot these all out on a graph, it forms a curve. And that's what they call the yield curve. Now, 80 to 90% of the time, long maturities, yields on long maturities are higher than yields on, are on short maturities. And that's called a normal yield curve. Mm -hmm. When it inverts, when short-term rates go above long-term rates, that's called an inverted yield curve. And every single time this has happened, it has resulted in a recession. Every time you get an inverted yield curve, you get a recession. Now, what's unusual about this particular instance is that it's taken so long. I mean, like I said, it, it, it's, it's been about 18 months since the yield curve inverted and we haven't gotten mm -hmm. a recession yet. Mm -hmm. And people are starting to wonder if this indicator still works. But historically, it is eight for eight. It is batting a thousand. It has always worked. Wow. What actually happens? What, what are the, the conditions that cause the yield curve to go to invert because if it if the long-term bonds a normal curve long-term bonds have higher yields that's representing the risk of holding a bond longer it should you should get a higher yield correct yep that's right yep yep so then what what happens in the in the case that it inverts where short terms paying up more typically what that means is the fed is hiking rates mm -hmm. and they hike and hike and hike and they hike too much and it causes the economy to slow down which causes interest rates on long-term bonds to come down so this is where we are right now let me look at my 
screen right here. Is is the problem more that they raised it so fast? Because in this year alone, they they went they went very fast. Is the, that the, really causing the speed? It? The speed and the magnitude are both important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, two year yields are four point four percent, and ten year yields are three point nine percent. So the yield curve is st- still inverted. Inverted. So, and then the only time the Fed does that is when there's kind of an extreme economic situation where they have to take pretty rapid action, like in this case to to uh, ward off higher inflation. Yep. So there, there's 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 vulnerability in the economy already that forces the Fed to take action and then causes the yield curve to in- invert. It seems like. Yep. One hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So Jared, since you you were in the middle of pretty much the worst financial disaster in the last twenty years at Lehman Brothers, what are you seeing that compares to that situation to today, if anything at all? Uh, almost almost nothing. There's really every recession is different. Every expansion is different. It's hard to generalize about anything. What we have, there, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff going on today. Valuations are high, right? The PE of the S&P 500 is 23, which is historically high. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, stocks are higher than when we started hiking interest rates, which makes no sense, right? Like we've, Mm -hmm. we hiked interest rates from zero to five and a half percent and stocks are actually higher, does not compute, like absolutely makes no sense. You know, there's a whole bunch of theories as to why this is happening. You know, percentage of stock ownership among households is now at an all-time high. You know, we have sort of, and I'm talking about like behavioral finance here, but in the United States, we really have a cult of stock ownership. Like we really believe that we invest in stocks for a retirement for the long run and stuff like that. In other countries, this doesn't really exist. In the United States, 58% of households own stocks. In Japan and the UK, it's about 26%. Other countries are a little bit higher. Uh, most countries, the, most people, People own bonds for the long term. Mm. So, you know, we just, we've never really been able to break that cult of stock ownership, even though, you know, we really had a 10 year period where returns were basically zero. Mm. You know, from 2000 to 2010, you know, we had a whole decade where we had zero returns and it did not stop people from investing in stocks. Yeah, I was like looking at the S&P 500 over the last five years and it's up like almost 80% now, 76%, 15% average over the last 15 years with COVID, war in the Ukraine, Israel Hamas war, like it's mad that it's beat the historical average given that those five years of turmoil and with the you mentioned eight for eight with the inverted yield curve resulting in a recession or being in parallel with a recession given where we're at now in most indexes seem to be back at at or near all-time highs do you th- still think a recession is imminent well i don't know about imminent i'm not sure i would use that word but mm-hmm. i do think we are going to get one i don't think mm-hmm. You know, I, I I don't think we've legislated away the big business cycle. I think we still have a business cycle mm-hmm. and we have periods of over and under investment. So I do think we'll get a recession, but I don't think it's going to pre- be particularly severe. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it'll be pretty mild. A lot of people are drawing parallels to the 1994-95 period, which, you know, people are saying, well, that was a soft landing. The Fed raised rates about 300 basis points really fast, but they did not invert the yield curve. And then in 1994, five stocks took off. So people are people are sort of rationalizing the behavior of the stock market through stuff like that. Jared, on one of your other recent podcasts, I heard you talk about the Terminal Feds Fund. I think it was Terminal Feds Fund. And you'd mentioned 5.5% was the Terminal Fed Fund. I was trying to understand what that 
actually meant and in what context it is to where we're currently at with Fed rates? Well, term, what terminal Fed funds mean is like where where would Fed funds be in an environment where inflation is stable and the economy is growing at 3%, right? And mm-hmm. If you look at the Fed directives, like when we have a Fed meeting, they issue a directive and they have what's called a dot plot where you can see where their predictions for interest rates are going to be for the next six months, a year, two years, five years. And equilibrium Fed funds rate should be around two and a half or three percent. Like that's that's what terminal Fed funds means. Like that's where we should be. Like right now we are in very restrictive territory. The Fed is going to be cutting for sure next year. They say they're going to be cutting three times. I think they're going to be cutting more than that. Mm-hmm. Um but basically their you know policy was too restrictive. They're going to take some of those rate hikes back. Okay. Now do you think that the upcoming presidential election is going to force some pressure on them to cut as well? Because I think historically we've seen in presidential election years that they they will be more willing to cut rates. I think, well, I think that's already happening. I think that's already happening. And the Fed is, I would say the Fed is more political than you think. Mm-hmm. Not so much to the extent like, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there saying Jay Powell, you know, wants to get Biden reelected. He doesn't want Trump to be president. I don't think it's that blatant, but generally fiscal and monetary policy gets easier in an election year. In the fourth year of the presidential cycle, stocks usually go up a lot. So these these things are all true. So cool. So Jared, I have just one final question. I think this will kind of lead into more of the book stuff as well. But while we're on the topic, I know you're a super smart guy and you deal with all types of very complex financial aspects, derivatives, shorts, options, inversion, <laughs> inverted yields. What like in your day to day, what what is it that you really enjoy spending your time on within the, the category of finance? And what are what's the stuff that you tend to not enjoy as much anymore? Uh, I don't enjoy trading as much as I used to. I don't enjoy mm-hmm. taking risk. I'm getting older. I'm going to be 50 in March. And I don't have the risk appetite that I did when I was in my 20s or 30s. And I still do trade and I still do take large amounts of risk, but I just don't enjoy it as much. Whereas I used to sort of get jazzed on it. You know, like I really... Mm you know, I, I like taking huge amounts of risk and I don't. What I do like to do is write. You know, I'm, I am I mean, I don't really consider myself to be a financial analyst. I consider myself to be a writer first. I like to write my newsletter. I write a bunch of other stuff. My my next book, After No Worries, is going to be a collection of short stories. Uh, I just finished uh, an MFA in creative writing from Savannah College of Art and Design. Oh, nice school. So that's, that's what I spend my time doing. I like to, I like to write. So I'll never, forget when I was like maybe 15, I was walking around Savannah School of uh, Art and Design and I remember it was just all girls, like beautiful girls everywhere walking (laughs) around. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be doing art and design, but man, this would be this would be a great place to spend four years. <laughs> yeah, speaking of Jared, where are you, are you based in South Carolina? I think because Sam actually yeah. has a, a house in South Carolina too. I didn't know exactly where you're at. Yeah, I'm in Pauly's Island. That's where I live. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, cool. I'm over by uh, Greenville in um, yeah a small yeah. area near Clemson University. Yep. Yeah, South Carolina. Derek, over to you with uh, more of the questions around the topic of the episode. One more thing before we get to that, can we talk about the fire movement and your thoughts on that. A lot of our listeners are still really involved in that. And I think it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about that. And then we'll jump into your new book. Well, they should all go to hell because it's the dumbest (laughs) idea of all time. Like they should, the fire movement is a terrible idea, not, not just practically, but philosophically, like the whole thing is demented. Uh, 
I, I can't believe that people do this. <laughs> and, you, you know, I, the idea that for the first 15 years of your adult life, you would live in complete deprivation so that you can save 70% of your income so you can get $2 million so that you can live in deprivation the last 50 years of your life right? So you're living in deprivation your entire life. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> what it is, is it's an anti-consumption movement. It really has nothing to do with saving or investing. It's an anti-consumption movement. It says that consumption is bad. Consumption is evil. And the reality is, is that buying things, buying material things gives us happiness, right? I mean, not the kind of happiness you would have from a marriage or a relationship with a pet or a friend or something like that, but buying material things does give us happiness. And it is unnatural to deny ourselves that happiness over an entire lifetime. The other thing is, is that let's say that for the first 15 years of your adult life, you are successful in saving $2 million and now you retire and you're doing whatever with your time for the next 50 years. That's a lot of stress because every time the stock market goes down 3% in a day, you're doing this mental math about, oh my God, yeah. am I going to have to go back to work? Can I make my savings last? What if we go mm. into a bear market? Like, yes, you have all this free time, but I, I would think that would be the most stressful thing in the world mm -hmm. is to sit there and watch your retirement account go up and down every day. It's a terrible idea. Well, I think we're pretty clear on your stance on the fire movement. <laughs> I, think that, <laughs> I think that'll uh, lead us very nicely into your new book. So let's take a super quick break and then we'll find out about Jared's new book called No Worries. Hey, bosses, if you would like to win a copy of our guest, Jared Dillian's new book called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life, I have one for you to win right now on our Patreon account. Just head over to investlikeaboss.com. Click become a Patreon. If you log in or sign up, you'll see the post at the very top, and I will ship you a copy if you are chosen as the winner and you live in the United States. So one more time, it's investlikeaboss.com. Click become a Patreon before January 31st, 2024. Good luck and back to the second half of this episode of Invest Like a Boss. All right, back on the show, I was able to get an advanced copy of Jared's new book. It's called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. I haven't finished it, but trust me, for me, I've gotten pretty far. I'm up to chapter four. <laughs> I take I take too long to read books, but I'm very interested. It's a very quick read. I like it. And it's very easy to digest for anyone out there. It's all about not stressing about your finances. But judging by your past, I think you've had some of the worst stress around finance. Can you... Tell us maybe, especially I would think around the Lehman Brothers incident, like what you experienced in terms of stress with money. Well, you know, I actually did not have a lot of stress around money, right? So later on in the book, I think in chapter five, I talked about, I talk about CFs and high rollers. Okay. I don't know if you can swear on the podcast. I don't know go if I can it. say yeah, go, go for it. Yeah, go so for it. We like it. C yeah. CF is cheap fuck. That's what CF is. So I talk <laughs> oh, about fire, CFs fire and high yeah, rollers. Yeah, the fire guys. <laughs> the <Yeah>. fire guys. <laughs> so I I used to be a CF. Okay. Mm. So back in back when I was at Lehman Brothers, I was making almost a million dollars a year. I was making eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and I was living in a four hundred and thirty thousand dollar house. Okay. By the way, if you ever, if your income is ever two times the value of your house, you're doing it wrong. Like that's you would have got along great with our other co-host, Johnny, at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the reality is, is that when 
when Lehman went tits up, I had a couple million bucks saved up. I had a teeny tiny mortgage payment and I could have lived for years off my savings, which mm. gave me the flexibility to take a risk and start my own business in the middle of the financial crisis. Like, which is insanity. Like I started a financial business in the middle of the financial crisis, which turned out to be the best thing of all time. If you're ever starting a business, starting it in a recession is the best thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually, like I, I, yeah, I had some money stress, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, you know? So Jared, was that, was that a salary or was that like uh, mostly commission that you're, you're making that type of money? It was salary and bonus. It was salary and bonus. And we're talking, you know, 15 years ago. So that would have been well over a million today. Yeah. 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 So since you brought it up, um, before we get to the principles of the book, you brought it up even just in the the first pages that I've read quite a few times. Uh, tell us why being cheap increases your financial stress. You think it'd be the other way around, but you're saying it actually increases your stress by being cheap. All right. So the goal is to minimize or eliminate your financial stress. And the two sources of stress are debt and risk. Okay. So debt is a big source of financial stress, which is obvious. And risk in terms of financial market risk is a big source of financial stress. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you want to get to a place to where you're not thinking about money all the time, right? And somebody who is cheap, somebody, look, there's two, we have two types of people. We have three types of people in this country. We have people who spend too much. We have people who spend too little. There is such a thing as people who spend too little. And there are people in the middle who get it just right. And that's the goal is to just get it right. But if you're one of the people who spends too little, every decision you make, even whether to get a soda out of the soda machine is this complex decision-making mm -hmm. process about mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's going to cost $2 and do I need to spend $2? Can I wait until I get home? And, you know, everything is done under this framework of do I need this, right? And money is the purpose of money is really to make us happy. And if if you're thinking about every single purchase, like it is going to destroy your happiness, you're going to be thinking about money all the time. That completely makes sense. Now, who did you write this book for? It seems like you would have a, a very broad audience with who you're speaking to. Yeah, I mean, literally. Literally, the audience is for everybody at every age group. But I would say it's really more for younger people. I would say it's for people, you know, right out of college to 40 or 45 years old. I would say that's about the sweet spot. You know, I've had a bunch of people read this book and, you know, who are contemporaries of mine. And they say, man, I wish I read this when I was in college. Like this mm -hmm. is this is really stuff I needed to know. And you bring up three major money points of stress in your life. Um, you said like, you know, don't worry about, you know, being cheap and getting the Starbucks every day or whatever it may be. There's really three financial pieces that are super important. You talk about buying a car, buying a house and going to college. Can you, is it really that simple? <laughs> it, it really is that simple. So, you know, uh, Susie Orman says, and nothing against Susie Orman, she's great, but you know, she, she kind of made herself famous by saying, if you, if you, if you don't drink coffee in the mornings and you save that money and you invest it, then you can retire. Okay. So let's do the math. I stop by Dunkin' Donuts every day on the way to work. I get a nice coffee. It's $3 and 70 cents. I do that 225 days a year. That's $900, $900 a year. If I do that for 40 years, that's $36,000. If I invest that, then it turns into 150 or $200,000. Okay. So the math checks out. If I don't buy coffee for my entire life, hmm. I will have $200,000 and I can retire. The math absolutely checks out. Problem is, is that 
buying coffee is a small daily luxury that is very, very hard to give up. I personally buy coffee because I got to go to the bathroom. It aids in digestion. I got to go to work and take a dump, right? And if you don't take a dump for 40 years, you're going to be pretty miserable, right? <laughs> so like basically, it, you cannot ask people to forego these small luxuries for years and years and years because they'll be miserable. But what you can do is say, you can give up a large luxury. Mm -hmm. So if you're shopping for a house and you have a 2,800 square foot house and a 2,400 square foot house, if you get the 2,800 square foot house and it costs $100,000 more, that's $120,000 in interest you will pay in 30 years, which is 100 years worth of coffee. So just that one decision is worth 100 years worth of coffee. Mm. So it's really about getting the big decisions right. If you get the house right, the car right, the student loans right. You don't have to worry about coffee. You don't have to worry about anything else. You can drink the coffee. It's fine. And speaking of a college, student loans just picked back up here in the US with interest rates. And I think that's on the top of a lot of people's mind that they were like, I spent six figures to go to school and I'm making 40 grand a year. So you bring up that it's more important to say when and not where you're going to college. Can you elaborate on that? Well, basically nobody should graduate from college with more than 40 thousand dollars in debt, right? And the assumption is, is that, you know, you graduate from a second tier school, you can make 60 or 70 grand when you graduate. If you have 40 grand in debt, you can pay 8,000 a year. In five years, you can have it paid off. The goal is to have your student's loans paid off in five years. If you're in your 40s or 50s and you're paying off student loans, you did it wrong. Like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The One of the worst things that we did, and when I say we, I mean Obama, in 2009, signed into law something called income-based repayment plans, right? So let's say you go to college and you have $100,000 in debt and your student loan payment would ordinarily be $900 a month. But what they do is they means test it and they look at your income and they say, well, you can only afford $250 a month. So people pay $250 a month on their college debt, but the interest is still accruing and it's being added to the balance of the loan. So you get these people, they're like, you know, I've been paying my student loan for 10 years and I started with 100,000 and now I owe 130,000 so I'm going to vote right. for Bernie Sanders you know <laughs> like so like it's it literally is just the math and what the income-based repayment plans did was they shielded people from the economic consequences of their actions until later Right. Like it, they, it basically postponed that decision until later. Actually, I didn't know that the, that it was a certain legislation that caused that to happen, because I hear a lot of people saying, you know, I started with this amount in student loans and I've been paying it and the balance is going up even higher. So that's really good insight onto why that's happening to a lot of people. Yeah, And what people should do is, you know, if they're if they're part of the income based repayment plans, like if your payment is three hundred dollars a month, you have to pay more mm -hmm. like you have to pay seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand a month in order to pay that down. It's just like so. your credit card bill, you know, they, they give you a minimum, but you should definitely not be paying that. Yeah, yeah. you should not be paying the minimum. Yeah. So can you uh, elaborate on the five parts of no worries? You say attitude, balance, 
how to manage stress with having debt and how to minimize it, how to manage stress associated with risk and how to minimize it, and finally, relief. Can you kind of touch on all those points quickly? Can I touch on all those points? Um, <laughs> well, we would be here for a while, but I'll talk about the attitude piece for a little bit. Sure. You know, in the I think the first chapter is the most important chapter of the book. In the first chapter, I say something kind of profound or stupid. I say that if you want money, like you have to want money, like you have to want money. Like that's like, I think most people, you know, they wish they could win the lottery and win a hundred million bucks, or they wish they could get a higher paying job or they wish this, or they wish that. I mean, you can wish for it, but in order to want money, you have to go out and get money. So one of the things I talk about in that chapter is sort of the things that you can do to make more money, like getting a raise or getting a job, or changing careers, or going to school to changing a career, or starting a business, or doing passive income. Like these are all things you can do to make more money. And most people kind of passively sit around and they say, gosh, you know, I wish I had more money, but they don't do what it takes to get it. Mm. I, I've actually, I heard, I heard, I heard Jared talking about this on one of it on one of his podcasts, which if you guys haven't checked it out, you should. I mean, they're like, they're short bites of Jared talking and like very succinct topics. And one of them was talking about like, do you, do you want to get rich? Like, are you sure you want to get rich? And all the things that go along with, with becoming rich. And I was just kind of listening to that, nodding my head like, yeah, 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 that, that, that totally nails it. But it's hard, I think, Jared, like in your experience, I'm sure you've seen a lot of people become wealthy, even like just at Lehman Brothers and stuff, making that type of money and like what that does to your lifestyle and, and how how to manage it. And like maybe maybe a good topic for, for your insight is like, do most people that you come across that that make considerable money, are they better off? <laughs> Are they happier or would it be better just to have not had the red pill and, and stayed uh, uh college it, debt? It, <laughs> it depends on the person. I actually, so I have a Substack which is free mm -hmm. and I've written many, many essays on that Substack, but one of them is called How to Handle Success, mm. right? Which there's a lot of books on how to handle failure. Like everybody knows how to handle failure, but most people really don't know how to handle success and falling ass backwards into a bunch of money and how complicated that makes your life and stuff like that. So, you know, at Lehman, I saw a lot of different people. I saw people who did the round trip. You know, they started at zero and they went to million, millions of dollars and they went back to zero. And then I saw people that handled it well. You know, they invested in T-bills and saved. Mm -hmm. And when everything went to shit, then, you know, they were fine. I've seen all different kinds of iterations of that. It really, it really depends on the person. I think, I think you had mentioned in the book too, that you said that people that handled money when they didn't have money are much better off than people that weren't able to handle money and then fell into money. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If you don't mind, we, we do have a question from one of our, our Patreons, AJ. He was interested in asking you uh, your thoughts on this. Uh, AJ writes, before I was diagnosed with cancer at 30 years old, my wife and I were savers and lived below our means. After treatment and eventual remission, our outlook shifted more towards taking the trip or making the purchase versus automatically saving. Do you have any tips on maintaining a balance without the fear of missing out? Uh, that is that is an amazing story. And I'm glad he came to the right conclusion. Uh, I, I'm sorry that he had to get cancer first to come to that conclusion, but uh, he, he ultimately came to the right conclusion. You know, you miss out on a lot of life by being cheap. You, you just don't get to experience a lot of things. 
You know what I mean? Like the money is there for a reason. It's there to make you happy. Like there, there are some people who derive pleasure from logging into a bank account every day and counting their money. They're like, Ooh, I have $2 million in my bank account and they get a boner and like, they're, you know, (laughs) like that makes them happy. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, that's, that's stupid. Like really that money is there. Look, I have a friend. He's a very dear friend. He's extremely wealthy. He's probably got 30 million bucks saved up. He lives in a terrible house in a terrible neighborhood. He does occasionally take vacations, but he goes to sandals. Okay. He goes to sandals at like, (laughs) you know, $260 a night. But like, you know, I think about that. I'm like, that motherfucker is going to die with a big pile of money. And will have never enjoyed it his entire mm-hmm. life. He it, it, like he will have never have derived any benefit from it whatsoever. And I think that like if you're wealthy, like I actually I actually almost consider it to be a sin to not spend your money if you're wealthy. You know what I mean? You should not be driving a 12 year old used Chrysler Sebring with cigarette smoke smell in it. Like you should not be driving that. You should buy, not saying you have to buy a Lamborghini, but you should buy an $80,000 new BMW and enjoy it. You know, like the goal is not to live above your means. The goal is not to live below your means. The goal is to live at your means. That is the goal. And the book is all about this balance, right? About trying to achieve this balance. And we have in the United States, we have a personal finance industry that looks at these people and say, all right, we got this guy. He bought a $100,000 Chevy Silverado. He's got a 570 credit score. His truck payment is bigger than his house payment. He's the bad guy. He is what's wrong with America. And we say this person is the villain, but my friend with $30 million who lives in a terrible house is the good guy. He's doing it right. And the reality is they're both wrong. They're both absolutely wrong. You want mm-hmm. to live at your means. You want to achieve that balance. Jared, I know you, you spoke with uh, Bill Perkins. What do you think about his his idea of die with zero? Um, so I haven't read his book. Mm-hmm. I actually, when I had my radio show, I had him as a guest on my radio show and I got to talk to him. Uh, I don't, I don't disagree with anything he says. I really don't. I think it's, I think it's a pretty good concept. So did he ever return your tweet? No, he didn't. (laughs) No, but I, you know, he probably doesn't even remember who I am. Yeah. I I don't, it's, I'm not, I'm not holding a grudge against Bill Perkins. Like it's fine. So we can reach out on your behalf. We've talked to him a few times, (laughs) but that actually did uh, what you were speaking actually reminded me of that as well. You got time for a really fun question before we get out of here that doesn't have anything to do with money. Sure. You said you're a radio, or I'm sorry, I was a radio DJ. You are an actual DJ and you host events and things like that. Who are some of your favorite DJs out right now? I would say my favorite DJ at the moment is a guy named Tim Green. Okay. Who is a British guy who does organic house, sort of like melodic organic house. As a producer, it's so clean. It's so amazing. Some of the best production I've ever heard. I mean, it's down tempo. It's like 121, 122 beats per minute. Uh, it's so melodic. It's so good. He j- li- he literally just had a mix out on balance. Um, the guy is the guy is a stud. Like he's absolutely amazing. So Tim Green, awesome. Add that to your Spotify playlist. Turn it down a little bit and then crack open. No worries. How to live a stress free financial life. It's Jared Dillian's new book. You can pre order it now. It is available everywhere January 23rd. Or you can uh, go online. Buy no worries dot com to pick up the book and we'll put all the links in our show notes as well if you want to check out uh jared on x 
or Twitter, as we still call it, at Daily Dirt Nap or at Jared Dillian Money on Instagram. Jared, I really appreciate your time on Invest Like a Boss. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Hey, bosses, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. The show will be right back. All right. Thanks to Jared for coming on the show. Sam, do you got any thoughts before we get out of here? I really liked his comments on the fire movement. Oh, his rants on fire movement were classic. That'll be a that'll be a controversial bit, but a very good one. Yeah. What do, you know? We we we. It's been a while. We did a dedicated episode on fire. Obviously, the movement got very popular recently. Uh, I thought Jared's kind of nailed it with like anti-consumerism, but anti-consumerism can also be like minimalism, and I do see. I do see a lot of value in minimalism, but it's it's different for everybody. Obviously, spending and acquiring is fun, and that's what most most people do, like their whole life, right? Sp- you, you reach like peak spending and peak consumption around like fifty, which is like thirty years of consumption from the age of twenty onward, right? Where do you stand with it right now, Derek? Like you're starting to accumulate quite a bit of things and well, always got your eye on, on eye on more things and it's adding stress to my life so I don't yeah. know, um, but i i guess the way that jared puts it in his book at least as far as i've read so far is like you shouldn't be buying these things with with uh, debt which obviously makes sense but you know there is a balance like i want my coffee every day i actually stopped and got a coffee before we got here every day yeah. i'm not willing to go that extreme and I really like the the use case where it's like, if you can afford a house for a million dollars, but you bought a house for 1.2 and you probably would have been just as happy in the house that was a million dollars, that saves $200,000 right there in one decision instead of thousands of little decisions every single day. Just focus on the big stuff. Yeah. Well, that's just being smart, right? That's being s- smart with money. But that's if we're talking fire movement, we're not talking about buying $1.2 million houses. We're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about moving to a very. I, I feel like the fire movement's kind of lost some of its fire. I don't know. I, I haven't heard it talked about a lot lately, but it could be the algorithms that I'm I'm pushed on social media. The stuff that I see. Have you yeah. seen it kind of reignite again? No, no, no. But I think that generally, like it's what a lot of people are. You know, they're they're living their life as that. Like I think he nailed it with you're basically aspiring to live poor for the first 15 years of your adult life, and then retire poor for the rest of, of your life, right? So I think the bet the much better approach, and that includes a lot of frugality, right? Being being the, the CFs and stuff. I think the much better approach, it's although it's it's arguably more difficult, but is to to make as much money as possible. And then if you want to retire into minimalist, like a minimalist lifestyle, that's awesome. But you always have the opportunity to come out of that. If you want to go out and blow money on a ridiculous vacation or business class flights or Think of all this new like technology and stuff that's coming out, like stem cell and AI and, you know, even like uh, space tourism and stuff. And it would suck to get like to age 65 and be exactly like you said. The market, you can't afford to go to space when everybody else is yeah, going. Like, or the market <laughs> crashes and you're like, wow, maybe I have to go back to work, let alone I can't go like on that trip to Mars or whatever. But you're just worried about even your basic bread and butter. And you don't know how long you're going to live, you know, by, by the time we're 60 years old, living to 120 might be the new normal, right? A couple stem cell injections and you're off. Yeah, let's hope so. so. <laughs> I think it's very short-sighted to, uh, to try to... Yeah, to try to be in the fire movement these days. And I love his blunt answers on that. And he's kind of that same way in the book, too. He, he's very straightforward and straight to the point, doesn't beat around the bush. Um, his podcast is that same way. Yeah. Sam, I know you listen to some episodes and mm-hmm. 
It's just nice little snippets to kind of remind you like, oh, hey, yeah, okay, I could do that. And kind of kicks in the butt a little bit. <laughs> hey, Derek, what are you drinking each morning? We know Jared's drinking Dunkin' Donuts each morning. I'm boring, man. I just get black coffee. Like a black coffee where? Uh, Starbucks or there's like a local little place by me that I go to. It's just whatever okay. is easiest for me. So you're, you're still spending your $3, $3.50 oh, yeah. on a coffee each morning. Yeah. But it makes you that much more smart. I, I'm not getting a $7 latte very often, but it, I don't know that that's even a money choice. It's kind of more like I don't need to drink 400 calories in a drink. <laughs> Uh, I've been drinking, I've been drinking the $7 lattes a lot lately. You know why? Why is that? Starbucks got their toffee nut latte for the holiday season, oh man. God. You got to get one a day, brother. <laughs> right after I get my pumpkin spice, I'll order that. <laughs> Starbucks has me at every season. Damn, they're good. <laughs> so funny. All right. You should definitely check out his book, though. I think I've made it pretty clear. I don't read as much as I should. And this has been a really easy read. So it's called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. It's out January 23rd. But if you want it for free, I'm going to give a copy away. Uh, first of all, I'm going to give a copy to Michael, our Patreon, who suggested Jared be on the show. So uh -huh. Michael, I'll hit you up and send you a copy. And then we'll give another one away in our Patreon. So if you join Patreon, you got a chance to win a copy of the book. Just head over to investlikeaboss.com. Click Become a Patreon. And I might send you a book. Derek, hold the book up real quick. I'm holding it up. Let me take a screenshot of this. Uh, put put it next to your yeah put it next to you okay I just want everyone to be able to see how ridiculous this looks Derek actually matched his sweater to the cover <laughs> of the book that might have been what happened you know what he that could have been like it. a conscious decision when I was getting ready this morning to match the book he's got a Christmas green sweater on <laughs> and the book cover happens to be Christmas it's green money it's money green it can't be a Sam it's not Christmas green it's, it's money, money green. green it's Christmas green it's it's trying to yeah. <laughs> trying to soften up Jared by matching his book. Oh, it's cute, man. There. That's <laughs> what it is. Well, see if see if the money comes in in the in the new year 2024, man. Hold up a $20 bill if you can't see it. <laughs> hey, the stock market's officially fun to watch every single day now. Ooh, I'm looking at it, it like three times a day, huh? Let's hope it stays that way. All right, so thanks again for Jared for coming on the show. Sam, do you like this tag team interview style? I don't know, should we keep doing it? I love it personally. As long as the listeners are okay with it, I say we keep it going. It's more fun. Anything to have Sam make me do more work. He's all for it's it. It's more fun. It's more fun. <laughs> and like when you space out, I can jump in. And when I space out, you can jump in. <laughs> we'll talk to all you right. bosses next week. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment folios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.